According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Today is chapter 31, Isaiah chapter 31. Another message of woe. Can't Isaiah give a happy message sometime? He can. And he has already. I mean, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Goodness, that's what could be happier than that. A baby's on the way, right? And that's good news. And there's other messages of comfort as well. The uh, prophet Isaiah has many messages of comfort, including chapters 40 through 66, which is comparable to our New Testament. Uh, the 66 books of uh, the Bible are very parallel to the 66 chapters of Isaiah. We just have to get through the first 39 chapters to uh, get through the Old Testament, if you will, in Isaiah, and then we can get to comfort, O comfort, my people Israel, in Isaiah chapter 40, and all the way to the new heavens and new earth of Isaiah chapter 66. So there's great comfort coming up down the road, and there's comfort in this chapter too, you just have to look for it, Um, in between the woe, all right, in between the woe. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. And here is something we're all guilty of, of course, not physically going to Egypt, but we do metaphorically every time we find a human answer to our problems instead of trusting in the Lord. All right? The Lord is the one we go to. He's our provider. He's our protector. He's our provision. We should be trusting in Him at all times. And when we decide to abandon His provision, that's when metaphorically we're going to Egypt. All right? We're going to Egypt. And that's what this metaphor here is all about. So it was historical for them. It's metaphoric for us. We want to understand the reality of it so that we make our own application in this day and age. And that's what uh, we're going to do this hour. And look at that. It's only nine verses long in, uh, in this chapter, so we should do well. We're going to cover all nine verses and uh, maybe even leave early. Okay, not likely. All right. But we will cover all nine verses and have the opportunity to do so in the process of our hour today. Remember, we're doing one chapter per week through the book of Isaiah and so forth. So far, anyway, we have uh, maintained that pace through the first 30 chapters of this book. As we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask God the Father to bless our time together to humble us under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your truth, rejoicing, Father, that you are the one with a plan and you haven't called upon us to create a plan of our own or solve our own problems. You've called upon us to be obedient, to be humble before you. Father, you are well pleased to lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I pray that we would be humble to be led by you in those paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Father, I ask for humility to receive the word implanted, that we would be responsive to uh, another message of woe yet again. Father, uh, let us learn from the messages of woe that are directed towards other people in the scriptures so that we don't become ourselves recipients of your woe in the outworking of our Christian walk. So teach us, Father, that we might glorify your Son. I thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, this is the fifth of the woes that we're dealing with, six woes in this portion of Isaiah, and here is the penultimate woe in this section. The fifth woe of this section of Isaiah targets the political leaders of Judah for their reliance on Egypt. And it's a theme that he's come to actually about three different times in these chapters. He warned them about it early, and then he caught them in the act while the messengers were still sneaking through the wilderness to get down to Egypt. He, uh, he caught them on that. We talked about that last, uh, last week or two weeks ago, our last time together in, uh, in the book of Isaiah, that they were sneaking through the wilderness in order to send their envoys to Egypt and uh, to secure the alliance. Uh, They still intend to follow through on this, and he's pronouncing them woe in this chapter. The political leaders of Judah for their reliance on Egypt. And as we already said in verse 1, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very 
strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. And really, it's a double sin at this point, the sin of commission that they're doing, the wrong thing that they're doing. But even worse than that is the sin of omission, what it is that they are not doing, what it is that they should be doing. And if they were seeking the Lord, if they were humble before Him, then that act itself would hinder them from the negative things, the sins that they are doing by commission. And uh, different applications here. A couple of things we're going to glean out of this first verse, out of the early couple of verses, really. Uh, Earthly salvation that trusts in numbers or human strength. Earthly salvation that trusts in numbers or human strength is misguided. Is misguided. Salvation singular should be is misguided. If you find a salvation that you yourself created, what have you done? All right. If you find that salvation is in Egypt and you have wheeled and dealed or bargained or purchased or whatever you've done to secure that salvation, anything you've done through human effort is misguided. You can't save yourself spiritually. Why are you trying to save yourself experientially when it comes right down to it? Salvation is of the Lord. And the poetry on this is interesting. As they rely on horses and they trust in chariots, You've got a verb for rely and a verb for trust. Obviously, horses and chariots, that's a great combination. <laughs> okay? You need horses to pull your chariots, and you've got them both. Okay? But even if you have all the horses and all the chariots, if you don't have drivers, what do you really have? So they, uh, they get highlighted in the second rebuke. But relying on horses and trusting in chariots. And the reason why Judah is so excited is because of the numbers. They ran the numbers and figured out Assyria outnumbers us. But then they'd run the numbers again and think, wait a minute, if we get horses and chariots from Assyria now or from Egypt, now the numbers are in our favor. Egypt being much closer in proximity than Assyria and the logistics to support the horses and chariots being much better to have, a, to have Egypt as a, as a base of operations rather than what the Assyrians were coming from in, in, in their territory and so forth. So there are the numbers that are highlighted in verse 1, because they are many, because they are many. And how many times have you ever known a believer, or how many times have you yourself been um, impressed with the numbers and felt a source of confidence because of the numbers? You've had a source of encouragement because, well, we can handle this. We've got the numbers to deal with this. Wait a minute. All right? It's not about the numbers. Never has been, never will be. There's times that God, in fact, says you have too many, like with Gideon. And says, get rid of most of your numbers. That God wants to glorify himself, and that requires less numbers on our part. All right? Less numbers. A smaller flock gives Christ the greater glory than the larger flock. He says, let me show you something. You can't afford this building. All right? But God says, I can. And it's not the numbers that impresses. And then, then the uh, component of strength. After we leave the chariots and the horses, we get to the horsemen themselves, the drivers of these chariots. And uh, they rely and trust in horsemen because they are very strong. The strength of those horsemen, the skill of those horsemen in manipulating the chariots and entering into battle and, uh, and all the rest. So here's the political leadership of Judah. And interestingly enough, Hezekiah is not named by name. And we're, we're left to puzzle it out whether Hezekiah is king yet or not. And if he is king, he's not named by name. And there, there could be reasons for that as well. But the political leadership that is advising Hezekiah or advising his predecessor to, to trust in Egypt, you know, who are you going to bet on? If, uh, if you know you can't fight against Assyria, you decide to, to bet on Egypt to bail you out. Well, that's how they ended up in this mess in the first place. They had actually called upon Assyria to save them from Damascus. We see how well that turned out. And now what are they doing? They are relying on the very nation that birthed them. Remember the history of Israel? They were slaves in Egypt. They were birthed out of Egypt. They, Moses led them through the Red Sea. They were delivered out of Egypt. And now the very place where they came from when they were not a nation is the place that they're relying upon to try to save themselves as a nation. You see the, the, the poetry on that? You see the insanity of that? Going back to an old way of living as if that's going to solve anything in your, new, in your new way of life? Oh, there's a whole lot we can preach out of this. But the numbers, and it's totally misguided. What happened in, in uh, 1 Chronicles 21? You remember that? 
what happened in First Chronicles 21. Do I have a clicker here? No, I don't. All right. Well, I'll tell you what happened in First Chronicles 21. David numbered the armies of Israel. And he did so because Satan was whispering in his ear. And uh, he got all proud of his armies. And forgot the grace that made him the king that he was. Forgot the grace that gave him every victory he ever had. David never won a war, never won a battle because of his great numbers. He never won a battle because of for an earthly explanation. He won against Goliath and he won against the Philistines and he won against everybody he ever went to war with because God was with him. And that's what he forgot in this tragic episode of 1 Chronicles 21. Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan and bring me word that I may know their number. All right, now, conceivably, there's nothing wrong with a census. There's nothing wrong with having a count of your population. But what we understand here is that the motivation for this is a military motivation of pride, to be impressed with the size of his armies. And even Joab says this is a bad idea, okay? If you know anything about Joab, Joab is is not, not a good guy. Joab is, if he's saved, he's not walking as a disciple. He is definitely a carnal minded believer. I don't think he's even regenerate. And Joab said, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Joab has the divine viewpoint perspective at least to say, look, David, numbers aren't the issue. If the Lord is with us, our numbers are irrelevant. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? See, when spiritual leadership goes into darkness, there's consequences. For the pastor, for a king, for a husband and father. All right. Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed, went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And he did the census and gave the number of the census to all the people of David. And Israel were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And Judah and was 470,000 men who drew the sword. Why is it the military forces that he's fixated on? What about the women and children? What about the total population? Well, we see what his thinking is. Who am I bigger than? Who can I pick on next? Who can I plunder? That's a, it's very much a uh, cosmos way of thinking. All right. But he did not number Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. The idea of, of uh, abhorrence, right? The idea of abominations that our culture has lost. Even Joab understands this is bad. This is bad. We shouldn't be doing this. And God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. And then David's got to deal with his divine discipline. This is kind of beyond what I want to teach this morning, but when you read these other verses here, 8 and following, David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And learn from this passage. Understand what this is about. We can confess our sins, and we can be restored to fellowship, and we should as quickly as possible. But there will be consequences. There will be manifestations that will continue to follow, particularly to whom much is given, as much shall be required. And so um, Gad now is the prophet. And uh, the Lord's going to give him a choice. Three things. Choose for yourself one of them. Now, I don't know about you. I've never been given options. God's never spoken to me in a dream and said, you know, door A, B, or C, how do you want your divine discipline to to be applied? Has anyone ever experienced that? No. But David, the man after God's own heart, David received this as, a, I believe, a, a reminder from his father how much he was loved. And uh, either three years of famine or three months to be swept before your foes, uh, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land. And uh, David said, I love this, David said in verse 13, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. And that's the principle. It's not the time, it's not the duration, it's I'm going to be in the hands of God, not in the hands of man, when it comes to the the discipline that God's going to apply in my life. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. Man, consequences to the flock. If a pastor falls, or consequences to a nation if for a king in his evil, consequences in, uh, in this regard. Well, 
Anyway, back to the concept here in Isaiah 31. The confidence in Egypt, in the horses and the chariots because of the great numbers, is to misplace faith. Faith should not be in the numbers, ever. God warned Israel against this very thing when he instructed Moses to write Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 17. I didn't put a clicker there either. All right. Oh, 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 that's what I did. Never mind. I turned in my loner and uh, forgot to add the clicks to this one. All right. Uh, Deuteronomy 17. God warned Israel about this. He brought them out of Egypt and he warned them. He said, look, a day will come and Israel is going to want a king. And when, when you get a king, look out. <laughs> okay? should be a warning for anyone that thinks that uh, salvation's at the ballot box. Or if we just get the right president, if we just get the right, we vote for the right person. Okay? Well, there's half the people now that think we've already got them. And then there's the other half of the people that want somebody else. The answer is not with a political leadership. The answer is, are we humble before the Lord God? All right, verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You know, there comes a time and the covenant nation of Israel is going to be bored to be a theocracy with a high priest. And they're going to look around and they're going to see, well, gee, all these other nations have a king. Why don't we have a king? God knows it. So when that day comes, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. They didn't do that. They, they took one they wanted, and that's how they ended up with Saul. Uh, one from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. It's a bad idea when your king isn't even your nationality. All right, Like the, the vice president of Zambia right now is not Zambian. And so if the, the president ends up dying, they've got to have a, they find another procedure. They've got somebody else instead of the vice president that's going to step up to be president because the vice president is not Zambian. Anyway, moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Here we go. This cuts to our issue now in Isaiah 31 when they are going to be all impressed with the number of horses and chariots. He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Well, who would ever do such a thing? See, Moses is way ahead of Isaiah, all right? Moses told him not to do it. Isaiah says, look what you're doing. Going back to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself. Bad to multiply horses, bad to multiply wives. All right. Again, this is what a king does when he's forging all these political alliances with these other kings and these other nations. Or else his heart will turn away. That's Operation Solomon, right? Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. All of the things that will cause kings to be prideful. And in fact, it goes on to say when he takes office, he needs to handwrite his own copy of the Mosaic Law. Of course, handwrite. They didn't have computers. But handwrite his own scroll, his own Mosaic law, write it out for himself to put it in his memory to not forget what it is that is expected of him. Really, though, the bigger sin is the sin of omission. It's a double sin. Not trusting in God and not seeking him. Not trusting in God and not seeking him. I believe the one leads to the other. A faith deficiency causes a... a destructive uh, application in your prayer life not trusting god and not seeking him that's the bigger sin it's a sin of omission it's a double sin of omission also here in isaiah 31 1 they did not look to the holy one of israel nor seek the lord they don't look to him they don't seek him they're not trusting and they're not um like i say in a prayer application inquiring of the lord seeking his will finding his answers the double sin of omission. We've had it already. Isaiah 8, 9, Isaiah 9, 13. It, it is a repetitive theme in the prophet Isaiah saying, why aren't you asking me? Why aren't you asking me? You know, if, when you're the creator God of the universe and you watch your human being creation turn to these idols, they, they, they're praying to idols. They're praying to the work of their hands and they are the work of your hands. Okay? 
you realize for the creator God of the universe, that's why it's sin number one, idolatry, having another God before him. He's the only God. So in Isaiah 8, 19, we saw it a few weeks ago. What's 31 minus 8? 23? A while back, we were here. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? (laughs) Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? How about the, the living God? How about entrusting Him? Well, there it is. All right, and then chapter 9 and verse 13. Yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them. Why do you think he's smacking you the way he's smacking you? Divine discipline is designed to wake you up, to get your attention, to find out, man, who keeps hitting me, right? Look at him. Find out why he's hitting you. And humble yourself before the hand of God's discipline. But there it is. The people do not turn back to him who struck them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. Daniel 9 and verse 13, this is, a, this is a huge conundrum for Daniel because he's, uh, he's an old man now. He was a young boy when he was taken into captivity. He's reading his Bible, finds out 70 years is the length of the captivity. Um, it's been 70 years and uh, he's got a problem. The problem is Israel hasn't repented yet. The problem is they are just as rebellious and stiff-necked as they were the day... Nebuchadnezzar took him away. And so he's praying and he's confessing and he's seeking and all these things. You read in Daniel 9, 2 that Daniel was observing in the books the number of years revealed by, the, by Jeremiah. It was 70 years. He's in Bible class. He's studying the scriptures. He finds out, and he knew it all along, it's a 70-year captivity. He even preceded that quite a bit because was, Daniel was carried off in 605. He was carried off long before the, the actual 70-year kickoff. And uh, so I, verse 3, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And really, this, this shows His humility. The reason why Jewish people don't, or the reason why anybody, why believers don't seek God, we don't want to hear what He has to say. <laughs> we know what He's going to say. He's going to say we're sinners and we're rebelling and we need to repent and we need to get right. And when we're in that kind of darkness, we don't want to hear it. But he says uh, he's praying and he's confessing the sins of his nation. We've done this, we've done this, we've sinned, we've committed iniquity. We have not listened to your servant, the prophets. And we were held into captivity. Verse 8, open shame belongs to us. Verse 9, To God belongs compassion and forgiveness. We've rebelled against Him. Verse 10, Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His teachings, which He set before us through His servants, the prophets. We are still a bunch of sinners. How can we go back to Israel now? And he's really wrestling over this with the Lord. He he doesn't see the answer. And um, so he says in verse 13, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. What can we possibly do? And, and, and Daniel is confessing and praying and, and all of these things. And so God sends him an answer. Verse 20, I love this. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. You, engage, you ever engage in intercessory confession? All right, on behalf of somebody else, Daniel's praying, confessing for the sin of his entire nation. Presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God. While I was still speaking in prayer, then, boom, the man Gabriel came to me about the time of the evening offering. All right, it's a fun chapter. I don't want to get lost in that. The bigger sin is the double sin of omission, not trusting in God and not seeking Him. And it's true for, for each one of us. What, what precedes our sin activity? We stop walking by the Holy Spirit. We stop listening to the, the leading of the Lord. Every time. Because if you're walking by means of the Spirit, you cannot fulfill the lust of the flesh. Before every overt sin comes the sin of omission. You stop walking in the light. You stop walking by means of the Holy Spirit. Every time. All right, the contrast and the perspective is man versus God and flesh versus spirit. 
Let's read some more of these verses here in Isaiah. The contrast in perspective is man versus God and flesh versus spirit. Always good to keep these things in perspective. Never lose your creator-creature perspective. Never lose your flesh-spirit perspective. Confusion in either of those realms, I think, leads, leads us into trouble. All right, so they do not seek the look for the Holy One of Israel, nor do they seek the Lord. Verse 2, yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and does not retract his words. Just because they're not seeking him doesn't mean he's not going to do what he said he was going to do. But will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. We'll talk about that next. The workers of iniquity and the helpers of those workers. We'll talk about that. That's coming up. Verse 3, now the Egyptians are men and not God. There's a contrast for you. Who is it that's going to save you from this? (laughs) Who is it that you think is your salvation? They are men and not God. All right? Same thing if, if, if you're idolizing your president, you're idolizing your governor, you're idolizing whatever, idolizing your husband, idolizing your wife, whatever. Oh, you know, our faith is not in men. If it is, it's misguided. Egyptians are men and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. There's the other contrast. Flesh and not spirit. Okay? Remember, our testing is in the spiritual realm. Our warfare is in the spiritual realm. The weapons of our warfare are in the spiritual realm. Why are we so oriented to flesh and not spirit? So there's the contrast. So the Lord will stretch out His hand. He will help and he who helps will stumble, and he who is helped will fall. Like I say, we're going to talk about help here in a moment, because the helpers are mentioned in verse 2, and we have the helper and the helpee in verse 3. And all of them will come to an end together. The helper and the helpee end up in the same boat. The contrast in perspective is man versus God and flesh versus spirit. And it's a contrast we want to keep in mind because if we lose it, it's probably an indication of our pride issue. Probably an indication that we are starting to think of ourselves as God or as good as God or lowering God to us. Who does he think he is? The man versus God contrast is often forgotten by the arrogant. Psalm 9, verses 17 through 20. Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. Ezekiel 28, 9. The man versus God contrast is often forgotten by the arrogant. We see it every day. Sadly, we, we live it when we go carnal. But every unbeliever that's around us, this is what they're doing. They set themselves up as being God. Psalm 9, 17 through 20. Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. Ezekiel 28, 9. That's a great passage in Ezekiel. It's rebuking the human ruler of Tyre right before it gets to the, the, the prophetic shift where it switches to Satan in rebuking Satan for his guilt in this regard, losing his perspective on the creature and the creator, when Satan himself said, I will be like the Most High God. The man versus God contrast. You realize that's what we do every time we sin, every time you know God says, thou shalt not, and we say, well, yeah, I will. <laughs> I will anyway. I want to. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not uh, always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. (laughs) Amen, right? They are but men. Think about all the things that nations get boastful over, that people get boastful over. All the things. And when it comes right down to it, we're but men. All right? And our time here is so short. We're going to be gone, and the next generation is going to come along, and they're not even going to know who we are. They're not going to care. Right? Men on the street interviews, and they're holding up pictures of President Ronald Reagan, and nobody can identify who this person is on college campuses around this country. Who's this? Who's this? Uh, is he an actor? clueless. And the interviewer says, well, yeah, he was an actor. Not what he's really known for. Okay. We're here, we're gone, and no one remembers. Psalm 118, 
Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All right? Or pastors. Or any husbands or whatever. All right? Human beings will let you down. Trust in the Lord. That's where your faith can rest. That's where your confidence lies. And then Ezekiel 28, 9. And here's the where not only do they forget that God is God and they're not, they actually start to think that they themselves are God. They get so boastful in this regard. Ezekiel 28 and verse 9. Will you say I am a God in the presence of your slayer? <laughs> Though you are a man and not God, in the hands of those who wound you. Yeah, your, your whole megalomania comes crashing down and your whole self-image as the indestructible God kind of comes to a, a, a crashing stop when your slayer puts you to death. Okay? It's a taunt from the living God here to this ruler in, uh, in Tyre. Ethbaal III, I think, if you do the history on that. The flesh versus spirit contrast has several applications. The flesh versus spirit contrast has several applications. And each one of these, I think, could become a, an interesting study. But understand, flesh versus spirit, it's contrasted in Scripture, but it's not contrasted in a way that a lot of the false uh, philosophies and religions want to do it. It's never presented as, as, a, as a dualism either a platonic dualism or a Gnostic dualism or anything of the sort. Okay, and If you know what that's about, or even whatever. It's, it's not describing flesh is bad, spirit is good. Okay, It's not presenting that. It's not presenting it uh, as, uh, because the flesh can be, is redeemed, we're to glorify God with our bodies. The, our humanity is what He designed us to be. We should operate in our humanity. We should conduct our earthly lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. No question about it. Likewise, our spiritual life. We can be a spiritual wreck. Don't just think automatically, ooh, flesh is bad, spirit is good. What happens if you're a spiritual train wreck? Okay? We want to have both flesh and spirit uh, aligned properly according to the will of God. So it's never presented as a platonic or, no, or Gnostic uh, dualism in the Scripture. And there's other forms of it too. All right? Some, you know, yin and yang stuff and whatever. It's all garbage. It's all satanic. All right? Um, but it's, it's used a lot. It's kind of becomes a big religious deal when we can kind of deny our flesh, right? We can plunge into a religion that stresses uh, uh, celibacy or it stresses um, vegetarianism or some kind of pathetic diet thing. It might stress something in a, in a physical sense that says, oh, we're, we're minimizing the body and the body's appetites and, and that's going to have value in becoming closer to the universe, whatever, in our, in our mystic uh, spiritual life. Ridiculous, all right? Let's understand the Bible's perspective for flesh and the Bible's perspective for spirit and understand that we have both, all right? And we are to glorify God in our bodies. Jesus actually stressed this contrast during his Gethsemane struggle. Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. And we ought to place these things in perspective. He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What do we learn from that? How do we correlate this flesh versus spirit dynamic? Because Jesus himself made that a point of teaching to his disciples, the ones that couldn't stay awake for just one night in their life. Come on, guys. Uh, this is pretty much the most important night in the creation of the universe. Can you stay awake tonight and stay in prayer, please? As Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And identifying where our greatest vulnerability is going to be. All right, our spirit is made alive at the moment of our salvation. Our soul is redeemed, but our body is still infested with this no good thing. We have a no good thing within each one of us. Each one of us is a fallen body in a fallen world. If we don't identify that properly and deal with that spiritually, we're in trouble. All right, that's Matthew twenty six forty one. We try to teach this to our young people as well, right? There's, you got a lot of help in this in this angelic conflict. You got a lot of help, and uh, the Bible is here 
The Bible has the information you need to resist those temptations. And your, your, your pastor is here, and he's got a message for you. Your parents are here. They've got a message for you. And ideally, you want your pastor and your parents and your scriptures to all be on the same page, right? And they're giving you the same message. And then you've got the world, and the world's telling you what it's telling you. And your friends are caught up in that. And they're, they're on the other side, all right? The world's on the other side. These other approaches are on the other side. So know who your friends are. Know who your enemies are. And don't lose track of the fact that your body is on the other side, all right? Your body is a fallen body. Now, you've got to harness it. You've got to redeem it. I mean, you've got to glorify Christ with your body, but you've got to know that no good thing inside of you. It, it's going to, you're going to have these urges and these impulses and who's in charge, all right? Does the cart drive the horse or does the horse drive the cart? Who's in charge? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. The flesh versus spirit rightly divides our bios life and our zoe life. The flesh versus spirit contrast rightly divides our bios life and our zoe life. John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8 message of Jesus to Nicodemus. Here's a guy that stayed up late. Okay. I think if he'd have been a disciple, he wouldn't have fallen asleep at Gethsemane. He's all kinds of confused. Born again? What are you talking about? How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? I mean, it just didn't make any sense to him. What's this born again about? And Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You've got to have two births. Water is your first birth. Spirit is your second birth. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. And here's the contrast. You've got a physical existence. You've got an earthly life. You've got a bios life. But if you're born again, you've got Zoe life. All right? Because it's born of the Spirit. It's born from above. That's the only life that's called Zoe life. It's the only life that's called eternal life. We want to contrast these. And it's, it, to me, it's, it's a beautiful thing the way Scripture describes it. And it's not coincidental that uh, secular wisdom has done what they've done. They've co-opted the language and they've twisted things. And look what they've done with biology. And look what they've done with zoology. It bugs me to tears. Look what they do with psychology. Look what they do with all these ologies. And think about it, all right? Because what they've done with every one of these ologies is they have ripped them from the proper perspective of the logos, Okay? The Logos is Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Logos. And they've got all these ologies apart from the Logos. No wonder they're confused. Their anthropology is completely ridiculous. Okay? Demonic and everything else. From goo to you by way of the zoo. What, what is that? What kind, of, what kind of anthropology rips itself apart from the Logos? That is, the glory of Jesus Christ. We are in the image of God. We are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus Christ. And if we have a flawed anthropology, if we adopt the mindset that this cosmos would take us to, well, there's no wonder the application is what it is in every respect. So we have this contrast here as well. Back to Isaiah 31. We're still looking at verses 2 and 3 here. Wow. Wow. There's a lot in this. Let's talk about help and helpers. I love help. I love helpers. God gave me a helper. Some 8,765 days ago. God has a design for helpers, a design for helpmates. God himself is our helper, or he wants to be. All right. God designed us to require that help. Sadly, Satan also makes use of such things, and he allows in the pursuit of sin, not only those who pursue sin, but those who help in the pursuit of sin. 
We talked about this in Romans chapter 1, of not only approving of the thing, giving hearty approval and taking part as sin does what it does. And so we end up with sinners and helpers of sinners. And God says, look at this, in this rebellion, the helper and the helped are both going to come under God's hand of judgment. Isaiah 31. Again, with Yahweh, with respect here in verse 2, He also is wise and will bring disaster. He does not retract His words. He will arise against the house of evildoers and not stop there, and against the help of the workers of iniquity. Okay, If, if you are going to identify with rebellion against the Lord God, even if it's simply in a helping capacity, you come under the hand of God's judgment for that capacity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out His hand. Notice, He who helps will stumble. And he who is helped will fall. So both the helper and the helped. The helpy or whatever that is. Alright, the helper and the helped. And all of them together will come to an end together. Okay? So the helper and the helped are both under judgment. And this I find interesting because this this too becomes an attack. So much of what God judges, He judges because it is an attack on who God is. Why is murder judged the way that it is? It's an attack on God as the God of life, the living God, the source of all life, and man in God's image. When you murder man, you're attacking the image of God. Why is, why is lying judged the way that it's judged? Because God's the God of truth. And God holds liars to the same standard He holds murderers. That bugs a lot of people. Okay? <laughs> so we think, ooh, murder, bad. Lying, well, you know, some lies are good. They're just little white lies. I didn't want to hurt their feelings. Okay? <laughs> Wait a minute. A lie is an attack against the God of truth. And He holds His creation to that standard. How about the attacks on marriage? Okay? God's the God of faithfulness. Why do you think fornicators and adulterers God will judge? All right. What about this concept? Okay. So, so many of these things, the sins that we do are attacks against God himself and his very nature. Now, here's his design as the helper. And here's his design to create systems for help and helping and and being helped, systems that will ultimately give glory to to Jesus Christ, systems that are designed to govern creation. Adam and Eve were designed to govern creation. They had dominion over animals and plants, and they were designed to do so. Male and female, He created them. She was designed for His sake, to be His helper. God designed Adam and Eve to be a helper and helped tandem for His glory. And when you look at this in Genesis 2, verse 18 and verse 20, you start to realize how fundamental this is, how foundational this is, and how it is that Satan twists such things when he creates his own tandems. He creates his own helper and helped capacity for all kinds of mischief. No wonder, you know, why, why sin all by yourself when you can rope somebody else into it? You know, was, was Satan's purpose just to trip up Eve or through Eve to trip up Eve and Adam together? To create a tandem in that downfall. We'll see this again this Wednesday in Proverbs 4. That you get on that path and they can't sleep until they start tripping other people up. They, they, they live to be the snare for other people. That's why we don't want to be on that road. God designed Adam and Eve to be a helper and helped tandem for His glory. Satan does just the opposite. He designs helpers. The the helpers of Rahab are crouched beneath him. He has a system in which helpers bring about an even greater mischief, an even greater downfall. It's so much so, it's, it's one of those axiomatic things. It goes without saying, right? It is evident. It's a given that misery loves company. Why? It's a given that it takes two to tango. Why? Why do we have these expressions? We, we have these little proverbs, right? They're just little maxims. And every single one of them testifies to the fact 
that sinners get together with other sinners so they can mutually sin. Okay? Well, the helper and the helped. God's got his eye on all of that. And says, what you're doing is you're defying. You are defying what I designed for the helper and helped program of humanity. All right? And husbands and wives as the helper and the helped. We have the provision that's there. Again, I'm, I'm preaching Proverbs this morning, aren't I? Okay? We drink water from your own cistern, your own well. Why should you be exhilarated with the bosom of a foreigner or strange woman? Okay? There's the helper and the help. There's what God designed. And when you violate that, you're using Satan's helpers. It's not what God designed. So, no wonder then we have helper and helps. And this is actually, it's a great study. Um, We need to go here. We know this, right? We know Genesis 2. We can save time with this. All right. Because we can spend time with this. Understand, God himself desires to be our helper. That God designed humanity in his image and for his fellowship. God himself desires to be our helper. And the more of these passages we memorize, the more that we trust in him, the more, the less frequently we're going to be tempted to run to Egypt and find some horses and some chariots. All right? In fact, that idea won't even cross our mind. Because we've got the Lord for our helper. Who needs that? Why go to the world's methods? Why turn to false provisions? Why trust in money? Why trust in any of that? God himself desires to be our helper. Psalm 22, when Christ was on the cross. Psalm 22, 19. God was his help. Psalm 27, 9. Look how many of these there are. I picked out a bunch of Psalms. And there's a reason why. I don't know. To me, the Psalms is just where all the doctrine gets personal, where it's expressed from the, from the soul of, of a believer who's walking with the Lord. This is the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me chapter? This is the words of Jesus Christ on the cross. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. David, a thousand years before the cross, spoke the very words that Christ spoke. I believe he saw the cross prophetically in a vision. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. See, salvation has to come from the Lord. No other provision. Psalm 27, 9. Verse 7 says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do you know when God says, Seek my face? He says, Seek my face when he smacks you upside the head with his hand of discipline says, seek my face. And if you're humble before that discipline, you say, yes, Lord, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a level path because of my foes. All right? One of the toughest things you're dealing with is family abandonment. Everyone's turning away from you. God never will. He desires to be your helper, and he's been your helper. He'll continue to be your helper as long as you seek him. Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. A very present help. He's not just present, he's very present. (laughs) All right. Our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Why, t- why go to Egypt for their horses? Why solve something through, through human effort? Why decide, well, I can figure this out. I'll take care of it. If you want something done right, do it yourself. You know, and whatever. I'm going to solve my problems. I'm going to wheel and deal. I'm going to bargain and whatever. I end up like Jacob in the pot of stew or something. I'm just, I'm trying to solve something myself with how clever I am. 
or the right kind of friends or whatever else. No, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. He's waiting to provide, and you're going to turn to this idol? Psalm 54, 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. See, and so many of these are in conflict, you notice? Strangers have risen against me. Violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. So what's the answer? Find other wicked guys to help me against those wicked guys? How about if I just trust in the Lord and watch him deliver? That's a good passage too. Psalm 60 and verse 11. Oh, give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. Let's just say it, it works. Let's just say you do get some kind of a relief. You do get some kind of a rescue. What do you got? What do you really got? If, if you've manipulated things and you've found some kind of rescue, some kind of salvation, even if it works or you think it works, has it really worked? What do you have now? You've just compounded things now. Now you've got Egyptians living in your land, right? What are you doing now? You're in bed with the, with the Egyptians and their horses and their chariots and whatever else. Chapter 63, verses 6 through 8. Psalm 63, verses 6 through 8. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Here's the great thing. We're in Bible class here and now, but the message doesn't stop now. We're chewing on it. We're dwelling on it. We're meditating on it. The promises of God are feeding our soul. You have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. We've got some intimate language here. If this was a man and a woman... Okay, that verb would mean something else. Well, the verb means what it means. And your right hand upholds me. Okay, this is kind of terminology we would find in Song of Solomon, right? About a man and a woman and the, what the hands are doing and the clinging and the holding. This is how intimate the psalmist is with doctrine, with the Word of God, with the Lord Himself. When I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the night watches, you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. It doesn't mean the problems all went away. It just means, hey, I'm under his wing and I'm, I'm singing. I'm singing like I can't describe because I don't know what the outcome of this is going to be, but he's taking care of me. He's my help. All right, 94, 17. If the Lord had not been my help, you ever ask those kind of questions? You ever bring up a hypothetical, a counterfactual? You ever say, man, if I hadn't have been a pastor, or if I hadn't have come to Texas, you know? If, 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 if. There's a lot of ifs that we look back with regrets and whatever, but there should be some ifs that we look back with, thank God. <laughs> man. And in particular, certain tests that we go through, Man, if I didn't have grace, what would I be doing right now? If I didn't have the Word of God, what would I be doing right now? If this flock was a legalistic flock instead of a grace-oriented congregation, what would a day like today be like? Don't even want to think about that. Thankfully, though, I don't have to. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. Wow. Where would I be if the Lord had not been my help? If I should say my foot has slipped, your loving kindness, O Lord, will, uphold, will hold me. Anyway, there's, there's a larger context there. I'm just running out of time. Uh, Isaiah 63, 5. Here's an Isaiah application. Stay tuned. About 32 weeks from now, we'll be here. Isaiah 63, 5. Oh, this is fun. God wants to be our helper, and ultimately He's humanity's helper because Jesus Christ came and redeemed us through the sacrifice of himself. Trotting the winepress, speaking in his anger. Why is your apparel red in your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? The second advent prophecy is looking forward, but it also has first advent fulfillment. I have trodden the wine trough alone. Why is he alone in this? The only one qualified. 
From the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. I stained all my raiment. He didn't need this. Why did Jesus Christ leave the ivory palaces? Why did he lay aside his privileges? Why did he who know no sin become sin on our behalf? Hmm. Well, for the day of vengeance was in my heart and the, my year of redemption has come. See, he can't have the vengeance until first he achieves the redemption. I looked and there was no one to help. I think of this verse a lot. In that song, Oh, What a Savior. You know, they searched through heaven and there was no one found. Except for Jesus Christ. He and He alone. I looked and there was no one to help. I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. So my own, my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me. God the Son, our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, is the only unique being of the universe that requires no help. We need help, and the Father's waiting to be our help. We can appreciate that. All right. Finally, the last section here, verses 6 through 9, Isaiah 31, 6 through 9. Return to him from whom you have deeply defected, O sons of Israel. What's the answer? Here and any other time? The answer is repentance. The answer is whatever you've done, however long the sin has been, you've been in sin for a week, for a month, for a year, 10 years, whatever. When, you, when you're finally crawling out of it, what's the answer? Turn to Him. All right? It's always the imperative. Turn to Him. Return to Him. From whom you have deeply defected, O sons of Israel. Say, well, I don't deserve it. Well, of course you don't. That's why it's called grace. He knows you don't deserve it. Return to Him anyway. Well, yeah, but I've been doing this. I've been doing... Return to Him. Today is better than tomorrow. Okay? For in that day, every man will cast away his silver idols and his gold idols, which your sinful hands have made for you as a sin. Don't worry about the Assyrians. He'll deal with that. You get right with the Lord. You get right with the Lord. Repentance is always the imperative. Well, this will be fleshed out more in chapter 55, one of my favorite chapters. In fact, Isaiah 55 all by itself is a good reason to teach the book of Isaiah. Just so you can get to chapter 55. You can get to, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by and eat. I love Isaiah 55. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. He will have compassion on him. To our God, he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. You love that verse? Love the whole concept? Man, I do. All right. I've learned from week to week, the final slide gets shown up there pretty quickly. Idolatry must always be rejected for true repentance to be manifest. You can't be truly repentant if you're trying to hold on to the idols. You can't have your cake and eat it too, right? You've got you to gotta rend your heart and not your garments. Hosea 14.8, oh, I wish I could get there. Hosea 14.8, Jeremiah 31.18-20, Joel 2.12-13. Hey, if you're not dead yet, Today is a good day to repent. All right? Unless you've died the sin unto death, then it's too late. But as long as you're still breathing God's good air on God's good earth, or whatever we say, right? You're breathing His air. He's still providing grace in your physical life. Today would be a day to return to the Lord your God. Doesn't mean your problems go away, but you can face the consequences in fellowship. That's the best part. Don't fear man, fear God. Right? Matthew ten twenty eight. he told the people, don't, don't fear hell. Fear the one that could throw you into hell. Okay? Isaiah 31, verses 8 through 9. Don't be afraid of those Assyrians. Be afraid of the God of the universe who's about to bring those Assyrians to an end. Fear God. All right, well, I'm out of time. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for all your grace. Thank you, Father, that we can return to you no matter what no matter what. 
And you are the father. You're not the older brother in the parable, the, the prodigal son. You're the father. And we return to you and you receive us and you accept us. And I thank you, Father. It's not because of what we've earned and deserved. It's because of what your son accomplished on our behalf. I pray, Father, for the grace, the grace to return to you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The grace to face consequences. The, faith, faith, the grace to recover. The grace to actually glorify you in a greater way than ever before. Because you are so faithful, Father, to bring us into these paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you, Father, when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Faithful and just. Not because we've earned it, not because we've deserved it, but because your son paid the price on the cross. And so you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, I thank you for for this message. I pray that we would hear it. I pray that we would obey it. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.